Welcome to The Lover's Hole. You're with Mike. And with Ian. And we are reading through the Jack Aubrey and Stephen Matron books of Patrick O'Brien. We are in part nine of The Ionian Mission. Ian, catch us up to date. Oh, Mike, we're reaching, I think, the most exciting chapters of this fabulous book. Last week, you probably remember, we had a showdown with Admiral Hart. Um, Jack got reacquainted with an old friend, which was HMS Surprise, the frigate that's joined the squadron in the Mediterranean. Stephen made that unwelcome entrance, breaking up a little slumber party between Jack and Mercedes. There was some espionage ashore. There was an encounter with Professor Graham in a moonlit French marsh. And along the way, we encountered booming bitterns and we encountered the mumps. And we even encountered trains, planes and automobiles. <laughs> so this week we've had this pursuit of the French and it it didn't go great. Even though Admiral Thornton seems to be just barely clinging on. And even though there's been damage from the storm and damage from this failed pursuit of the French, for our heroes at least, things might be coming together. So maybe, Mike, the actual Ionian mission is going to come into view this week. Who knows? And along the way, I have a feeling that we're going to have yet another man overboard incident. And who knows, maybe lesbians on the horizon. I'll tell you, you never can tell with Patrick O'Brien. You said about damage with the French fleet and that incredible pursuit. And one of those, probably most badly damaged, the Worcester, is coming limping back into the squadron as we rejoin our heroes. And Jack originally had had kind of a daydream about the Worcester kind of coming apart and wrapping her with cable and looking a bit like a chrysalis. And and O'Brien tells us that that's exactly what she looks like now. Got all this 12-inch cable wrapped around her. There's a spritzel filled with tarred oakum under her bottom, just barely holding her together. Uh, He's late rejoining the fleet. Jack's thrilled to see that obviously Squadron has received some supplies because a number of the boats now have their masts repaired and and that the blockading Squadron still looks strong. But he's coming up to the ocean to repair aboard the Admiral's ship and report in, and he hears the Admiral's dog howling, and it gives Jack kind of a, a moment of pause. It's not only aboard the Admiral's ship that we've got pause for contemplation because as we're waiting we see surprise coming in her side is painted blue and her pendant is lowered and we learned that captain latham of the surprise and his first lieutenant were killed in the engagement with the french just in that final moment of the chase when they fired on the robust and the robust returned fire and jack goes in and finds the admiral the one with the howling dog it says removed from humanity his mind was alive it dealt with the details of his command, rarely hesitating for a moment, but the man was not, or not wholly. And he looked at Jack from an immense distance, not coldly, less still severely, but from another plane. And Jack felt more and more embarrassed, ashamed of being alive, while the other was already taking leave. So it's it's a really sombre moment. The Admiral's clearly aware, somehow, that his time is up. And the Admiral receives Jack's report, congratulates him on bringing the Worcester in, says she must go to Malta for a complete refit, and orders Jack to take command, great news, to take command of the surprise and head out to the Seven Islands in the Eastern Med to deal with a situation that's brewing on the Ionian coast. Now, this all sounds like good news 
for Jack Mike, but it's delivered in the context of this really chilling awareness of the the health and the mortality of Admiral Thornton. Yeah, the this scene is so powerful. The Admiral's just, you know, kind of routinely given Jack his orders, as you say, with the surprise with, with Dr. Matron and Professor Graham as advisors, Jack accepts. And then very routinely, O'Brien writes, then goodbye to you, Aubrey, said the Admiral, holding out his hand. Yet it was not a human farewell. It was rather a gesture of civility to a being of another kind, very small and far away, at the wrong end of a telescope, as it were, a being of no importance, in circumstances of no great importance, that nevertheless had to be dealt with correctly. Only twice Jack felt that the Admiral was still in contact with the ordinary world, once when he gently put his foot on the pug's back to stop it wheezing so loud, and once when he said, leaving this station. It was common knowledge that the ocean was sailing for Mahan and Gibraltar in the morning, but the Admiral's meaning would have been clear to a man with even less religious sense than Jack Aubrey, and the tone of unaffected humility and resignation moved him deeply. It's really somber, isn't it? And I think it's no accident that we've got this little moment of the contact with the dog being a little bit of solace for this character at the moment. Yeah, contact with an animal, which is something that, you know, we see with other characters as well, Stephen especially. Right. I was so taken in with this. I remember many, many years ago, my best friend uh, and work colleague was dying of cancer. We're, you know, really young. And his cancer, he had lived far beyond anybody's expectations. He had a relapse. He was back in the hospital and he'd been remodeling this old house. And I'm trying to make some conversation. And I say, hey, have you got your house in order? And he looks over, you know, smiles and says, I'll know by morning. And he passed that night. He too knew he was leaving his station. And the way O'Brien captures this in this moment just really affected me. It's great, isn't it? It's a sign of great writing that it kind of illuminates those things in our own lives. Absolutely. Absolutely. So... As well as this very somber reflection on the the end of Admiral Thornton, we've got a reflection on Hart and where is he at in this whole situation. So Jack is on his way to meet Admiral Hart, who's now the acting commander-in-chief. And I can't imagine that anybody in the world, the reader world, nor the, the fictional Royal Navy of Aubrey world, really thinks that Hart is a candidate to take on all of the responsibilities of CNC Mediterranean. But anyhow, he's acting for now. And Jack joins Stephen and Professor Graham and Mr. Allen. And Stephen says he's not going to sit in on this initial meeting with Admiral Hart because um, he can't make any official appearance, it says, in this matter or in any other to do with intelligence at the moment. So he goes along in his mode as physician with Dr. Harrington to attend to Admiral Thornton. And Mike, it's pretty clear that Hart is way over his head. He's been a part of all of the naval matters on the squadron, but really just the naval side. He doesn't know anything about politics. He doesn't know anything about the intelligence networks. He hasn't had the Admiral's confidence. He clearly doesn't have Stephen's confidence either, as it happens. But at least he's civil. He's being civil to Jack, and he greets Jack as if he was an old acquaintance, and he's deferential to Alan and Graham as well. And we hear that he was straining to follow 
the short account that Alan gave of the position in the Seven Islands. So, Mike, the, the Seven Islands are a real thing. This particular collection of islands in the Ionian actually became a republic of the Seven Islands later on in the 19th century. Some of the names of the islands involve Paxos and Corfu and Kefalonia are real. Some of the place names are invented, and maybe it's not a surprise to us all that the ones that we're going to visit are the ones that are, that are fictional. In the modern world, we think we're probably in Albania, but no real place in Albania. So we've got these places called Marga and Kutali, which are adjoining harbours. We know that the French hold Marga, but whoever possesses Kutali could cut the aqueduct that serves Marga and take the town from behind. And a friendly base in Kutali would make it easy to attack Paxos and Corfu, which Napoleon views as the keys of the Adriatic, the keys of this whole important seaway in the eastern Mediterranean. Kutali is held by Turkey is part of the Ottoman Empire. England can't afford to offend the Ottomans, can't afford to offend Constantinople with unprovoked aggression. And we learn that the Sultan's mother is French, so the French are in a good position there as well. However, Kutali had been an independent Christian republic and its status was being decided by Constantinople while a placeholder governor rules the city. And Mike, I, I love the way Alan is taking the role of um, kind of basal exposition here. He's filling us in on the idea of the different rulers and the place that they have in Eastern Mediterranean politics. And he's doing it so deliberately that it seems like he's holding up a finger and going, okay, folks, just pay attention, fold over the corner of this page in the book. You might want to come back to this. Exactly. Because <laughs> I can remember coming back to this spot many times on rereadings going, okay, okay, remind me, Kutali, Marga, Ismail, what's all that about? So we learn that the town of Kutali, as we said, was an independent Christian republic. There's this placeholder governor and his recent death had put the city up for grabs and the leaders of the three Baliks surrounding it. So Mike, help us out. What's a Balik? So a, a Balik is a Turkish word and it, and it means literally the territory under the jurisdiction of a bay. And a huh. bay, and, and, and we've talked about, you know, Byzantine and Byzantine kind of politics and all that, the the whole structure of titles and royalty and and kind of gentry and lords and that in, in Turkish is is really complex and changes over time. But a bay at this time is a title that's just below a pasha. It's mm -hmm. usually known for somebody who holds a territory like we're talking about here, a bay and a bay lake, also used for lower members of the royal family and their consorts. And just to be complicated, it's also used for military officers like a naval commander. So you can be a bay in many senses of the word here. Yeah. Uh, these bays are these three, as you say, in surrounding territories, all of whom are going, ah, you know, as long as we got a little fluidity politically, I'd like to just grab and snatch that territory. And, and Alan's trying to explain this to Hart. And I love how Hart keeps kind of reaching the next simple linear conclusion. But of course, that doesn't hold. And Alan has to keep, as you say, say, no, no, watch my fingers. This is number two. Right. <laughs> so exactly. So we have the first two, Ismail and Mustafa. They've already approached to the British for help. There's a third, this guy, Siahan, who is thought to have an agent in Malta ready to make a request. They're all asking for cannons and powder. Hart is confused. He probably can't even spell their names. Um, and Graham is trying to explain patiently that the further territories are from Constantinople, as you say, Mike, the more independently they act and the more they fight with one another. As long as this fight is resolved and one of them wins and provides proper excuses, then their jurisdiction is normally recognized by the Sultan. 
unless the sultan's in a mind to make a direct appointment. So all three of these bays are jostling for the sultan's approval and for his attention. And it's complicated by the fact that we learn the admiral, the old admiral, Admiral Thornton, favors Mustafa, who's a naval captain, maybe one of those bays that's a bay by virtue of being a military commander. And the British embassy favors Ismail. So we've got Mustafa and Ismail are competing favorites maybe so far. The third bay, Siahan, is sitting quietly. We don't know how his position is going to fall out yet. All of the bays think that an attack by one will unite the other two. So they're looking for kind of first mover advantage. But they also don't know what the Christians in the town will do. So the Christians are holding the citadel, the upper part of the town. They don't know what they're going to do. And clearly, Turks have at best uh, an independent or an indirect authority over people who are, uh, you know, who are, who are culturally Christian. Anyway, says Alan, the position will change the moment the cannons arrive. Yeah, and, and it's interesting. So the cannons are going to make all the difference. And as we've seen earlier in this book, yeah, it's going to make all the difference. All three of them have promised to immediately turn the guns on the French and Marga. So if you help us win Catali here, don't worry. We're going to take Marga. We're going to bring you in. We're going to be allies. And, you know, we'll do that before the French in Constantinople intercept. But we also have intelligence, and you may have mentioned this just a minute ago, Ian, that all three of them are probably also making the same overtures to the French. And we know that this area, everybody turns on everybody. Everybody's an opportunist. It doesn't remind me at all of any political systems I'm currently aware of. But the British, you know, we learn, Alan says, we've already got the guns on transports in Valletta. We're ready to move, but we don't know which of these bays to trust, you know. Uh, they they could turn on us. Are they really going to help us? Have they already made a deal with the French, but they're looking to get a little additional firepower from us? And the Admiral has said, and Alan's reporting this to Hart, that he wants to send Jack in the surprise with a political advisor to assess the situation, meet with each of the three bays, and then decide who to back and carry out the operation immediately if he can, since time is of the essence. The English want to move before the French move and gain this strategic advantage in the area. That's absolutely right. And Mike, we get this feeling of some pieces falling into place. Not only is Jack about to take command of HMS Surprise, his favorite, favorite old frigate, but people are getting to be okay with each other, with, with the exception, I think, of Stephen, who doesn't trust Hart yet and isn't prepared to make a public appearance in the guise of an intelligence officer or agent. Right. <laughs> um, we have Admiral Hart and Professor Graham and Alan and Jack all having a kind of gangs all together, reasonably human, reasonably peer-to-peer conversation. All the posing and manipulation of Hart seems to be at least temporarily in the back seat. Jack seems to have a little bit of what we keep calling his mojo back. And Graham isn't quite the huffy, precious, standing on his authority person that he perhaps was right at the beginning of the book. And we have this very different tone from Admiral Hart, who says, just so, just so. And Alan says, perhaps it would be as well to couch the orders in the most general sense, leaving a great deal of room for discretion. And Mike, this is the thing that Hart absolutely failed to do, honestly and sincerely, for Jack in the previous mission to Medina and to Barca. So Hart says, certainly, certainly, just put in, use his best endeavours, together with a general statement of the aim of the operation, and leave it at that. Do not tie his hands. Does that suit you, Aubrey? If it don't, just say the word and the orders shall be wrote to your dictation. I can't say fairer than that. 
and this is a real change of change of heart for Admiral Hart. And it, might, it, it reminds me a bit of the moment in the surgeon's mate where everybody was kind of okay. We had everybody back together with Admiral Somarez and everybody had kind of resolved to positions of being okay with each other. And it had this nice feeling of, okay, now we can talk to each other. We can get on with the actual story. We can get on with, in this case, the actual Ionian mission. Right, right. And, and, and it, it just gets better. Allen suggests that the surprise's current crew be redistributed in small groups throughout the squadron. And, and we know that nobody's happy about the way they failed to engage the robust. And Hart has kind of a reaction that he would rather have them all hanged from mutiny. And that's kind of a little bit out of left field. I don't think we'd heard anything about that. But nevertheless, they're going to send the surprise's crew away and remand her with all these ships that are going into Malta to be refitted. Having heard that, Jack says, well, well, hold on a minute. You know what? I actually have a pretty big crew on the Wooster that's going in. And for a small crew for a frigate like that, I could pick one for my own people. Hart says, make it so, Aubrey, make it so. And, and O'Brien writes, in the same tone of awkward goodwill, he continued, of course, you'll have to have a sloop of some kind in company for this sort of expedition. If you'd like, I will try to let you have Babington in the dryad. And Jack replies in one of our favorite lines, thank mm-hmm. you very much, sir, said Jack. I should like that of all things. So here we go. Oh, my gosh. Jack gets to pick his own crack crew out of the surprise. Babington in company, an Ionian mission. It's it's only page 284 of 400, and we are about to leave the starting line. Yay! Fixing to get started. <laughs> but we've been here before, haven't we? We had the same thing in The Surgeon's Mate and a little the same thing in earlier books as well. You know, it takes all of these interesting maneuverings and context settings and machinations to get to the point where, uh, you know, a traditional, what you might call a straightforward novelist would have said, right, this is the moment. This is the inciting event. Maybe it's a bit like naval life and all the sailing and positioning and everything you have to go to. And then and then finally a battle, which lasts hardly any time at all. Maybe it's a bit like a honeymoon, but let's not go there. <laughs> well, you speak for yourself, Mike. <laughs> Another sign of, of Happy Jack is that we're let into his correspondence back home with Sophie. And of course, at the beginning of this book, the situation between Jack and Sophie was pretty grim, at least from Jack's point of view. He's aware that he's committed adultery. He's behaved rather like a scrub. Right. And his his thinking about Sophie is awkward and ridden with guilt. But now when we're in on the letter writing back home, it's really joyful and free-flowing. And I think we're just as happy as Jack is as we hear the tone of the letters home to Sophie from the surprise. We are also just as concerned as Jack is that Hart's goodwill won't continue if Jack doesn't succeed in the mission. Hart, we think, is going to throw Jack and Babington to the dogs if it doesn't work out, and he tells Sophie as much. We already know that Stephen doesn't trust Hart either. That's why he wouldn't reveal himself. And Jack is enjoying describing Hart to Sophie, and this laughter disturbs Killick. We haven't heard from Killick for a while only Killick out of all of the old Sophies and surprises moving back into their beautiful old frigate, the Sophie, only Killick could be cross-grained and grumpy about the situation. He's completely out of sorts. It's cramped. There's no light. Um, Captain Latham had moved the position of lights and storage and windows and everything's out of the way. He won't be happy until he's back in a ship of the line with plenty of room to manoeuvre. But Jack says, 
for my part, I do not care if I never see a ship of the line again. After these months of close blockade, a well-frowned frigate seems the ideal command to me, and I may say the same for all my officers. It was a great scene, and, and you know we don't have time to go through all of it, but we have Jack's writing, Killick's moaning and complaining, Jack's telling Sophie about it. But there is one moment he's feeling really good. He wants to kind of pick up Killick's spirits a, a little bit, and he asks for a glass of bitters and tells Killick to have one himself. And Killick reminds him that there's none left, sir, you know, because the way things had been reshifted on the surprise, it had been dropped in and busted up here. And then Killick has this little rhyme at the end. It says, so so there ain't none left, all wasted, not even tasted, all gone into the build. And he repeats this a couple times. And you know, there's this, again, this starting little cadence, which we've heard early about poetical and not poetical and little bits of rhyme. And Killick throw this one in. I only put a pin in this because we're going to come back to poetical shortly. <laughs> Yeah, and, and maybe there's a little bit of metaphor there. You know, bitter sourness, defeat, disappointment, maybe they've been washed away. And maybe that means that what's coming is is sweet and voluptuous. I would be really surprised if it was all like that, but maybe that's a little signal that we're getting. There you go. Well done. Huh. <laughs> so even though Jack can't get a glass of bitters, it's still time to eat. So he takes a turn on deck to whet his appetite. He smells the midshipman's meal. And, and we know that reflecting back on his life as a midshipman and even as a foremast hand is a happy thing for Jack. Um, and he'd always rather eat early like the midshipman and the foremast hands do. So he smells the midshipman's meal and that gets his mouth watering. Um, O'Brien tells us that smell wasn't really necessary because um, being happy always made Jack hungry. And Jack, it says, was filled with an irrational glee. He loved being on the deck of the surprise. He loved being out there sailing beautifully on the faint breeze, going to meet the dryad. And O'Brien goes on and says, it was largely an irrational happiness and entirely on the surface. For he had only to move down one layer in his mind to meet his very real distress for Admiral Thornton. One more for the shocking disappointment of the battle that had escaped him, a battle that might have ranked with St. Vincent or the Nile and which would almost certainly have made Tom Pullings a commander, a move very near to Aubrey's heart. And Mike, we're going down further into the layers. Another layer still for his own deeply worrying failure at Barker. And if he sank farther, there were always his legal and financial worries at home and his anxiety about his own father. And since Jack's father is now in Parliament, representing two constituencies at once, speaking in the House as a radical, criticising and embarrassing the ministry, the influence of father is a not a happy, uh, a happy idea for Jack. So O'Brien continues, there was not much room for rational glee if Jack looked forward either, but rather the prospect of an exceedingly difficult situation in which diplomacy rather than hard fighting would be called for, in which he could rely on no support from his chief, a situation in which a mistaken choice might bring his naval career to an end. And Mike, O'Brien's doing a very careful thing, isn't he? He's reminding of all these things that are not quite right, but nonetheless, Jack is happy. <laughs> and I think we're, we're being invited to join Jack in his slightly superficial glee at the situation that he's in right now. 
Yeah, I think you're exactly right. Yeah, that he he is happy despite all this. He's delighted to be rid of the Worcester. He calls it a walking corpse. He's you know he's sorry to leave the oratorio behind. He's delighted to have left the mumps behind, and and actually happy to get rid of all the midshipmen except for Calamy. You know, who, who he thinks is wonderful, and Williamson, who he feels this obligation to his former shipmate's uh, widow to bring along. And and we and we return to a horse metaphor again here. He says, and he was aboard a thoroughbred frigate, a ship he knew through and through and that he loved entirely, not only for her amiable qualities, but because she was part of his youth quite apart from the fact that he'd commanded her in the Indian Ocean, where she had behaved quite beautifully, he'd served in her long, long ago, and even the smell of her cramped and awkward midshipman's birth made him feel young again. Oh. It's great, isn't it? He's so happy just with the situation that he's in and with all the associations that he has. Um, we, we know that uh, he's in this uh, situation with a hand-picked crew, a surprising number, as it says in the text, a surprising portion of old surprises. And he sees that the crew are all cheerful. And Mike, we we always knew, I think, and we were reminded very explicitly a couple of chapters ago that Jack cares deeply and perceives very acutely what the mood is among the ship's company. So the fact that the crew is cheerful, that's another good tell for us, I think. Very definitely. And very, like you say, very important to Jack. We've got all these passages about happiness. We've, we've got these little warnings about, you know, could be the end of his career as well, deep down in his mind. In the midst of all this, and there follows one of these passages that I love O'Brien for. One of the reasons I can read along for hundreds of pages without the regular story arc of, of most, you know, kind of three-act things. And, and this is one that, that I kind of go back and read and reread. And I notice in my Kindle that so many people have have kind of underscored some of these things. Because in the midst of all this happiness, O'Brien shifts perspective, and now we've, we've got Bondin sitting there on the gangway with, we, we think, probably uh, one of our favorite Joes here. And, and Bondin says, the skipper's luck is in. And, and you know, he's actually embroidering surprise on his shore-going hat. So all happy to be back a surprise again. Uh, it says, well, I hope so, I'm sure, said his heavy cousin Joe. And then he kind of takes a dig at one of the marine lobsters next to him. But then Bondin reflects, I only hope it's not come in too hearty, that's all, said Bondin, reaching out for the solid wooden truck of Number 8's gun carriage. Joe nodded. Although he was a heavy man, he perfectly grasped the meaning of Bondin's luck. It was not chance, not commonplace good fortune, far from it, but a different concept altogether, one of an almost religious nature, like the favor of some god, or even in extreme cases like possession, had to be treated with great respect, rarely named, referred to by allusion or alias, never explained. There was no clear necessary connection with moral worth, nor with beauty, but its possessors were generally well-liked men and tolerably good-looking, and it was often seen to go with a particular kind of happiness. It was this quality, much more than his prizes, the perceived cause rather than the effect, that had made the lower deck speak of Lucky Jack Aubrey early in his career, and it was a piety at the same old heathen level 
that now made bonded deprecate any excess. Whew. Oh, it's great, isn't it? There's so many great Patrick O'Brien themes in there. We've got the idea of luck and its its quality to be cherished and the pieties of the lower deck and the idea of someone's character as they go through life being about the cause and not just the consequence. It's, oh, it's really great stuff. Yeah. I, you know, any other writer could simply say, touch wood, you know. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. He's, you know, Brian's saying, wait, 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 we're coming in for a different moment. I don't know. I'm almost thinking, I got to take a, a few moments to reflect on this. How about you? I, I think I do. Being not necessarily tolerably good looking and not necessarily well liked, I think I might need to go and grab a cup of coffee to make up for both of those two things. So we'll be right back after this short break. If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole. Welcome back to the lovers hole. I hope everybody has uh, touched wood and we're ready to move ahead here. Yeah, I think we are. And Jack is heading in to join the officers as a dinner guest for the big poetry contest. Now, if they were still aboard the Worcester, that would be in the wardroom. But being back aboard the Surprise and she being a frigate and having a single deck, it's the gun room. Huh. So, very, very nerdy. Anyway, after a, a pretty plain meal with the fellow members of the gun room, with the fellow officers, um, we read that that was roast beef of old Calabria, a buffalo that's too old to work, that the Navy calls it a grey fryer, and figgy dowdy, the crew's typical Sunday dessert. They're ready to start with the poetry. But, Mike, before we go on to the poetry, I, I just love this reference to the uh, to the roast beef. <laughs> grey fryer is a nice poetic name for a mouldy old bit of beef. But even the explanation is is funny and poetical as well. It is. And it has that liturgical ring, which I always love to hear. <laughs> <laughs> so we're in this very tightly constrained, hot gun room of the surprise, hardly room for all the servants behind the officers' chairs. And our old friend Tom Pullings, president of the mess, starts the proceedings. Thompson, he says. Pass round the voting papers, place the ballot box, collect the stakes, and hand along the glass. We've agreed, sir, that there is to be no applause, no, no catcalls for fear of influencing the vote. It is all to be as fair as habeas corpus. Or nunc dimittis, said the purser. And I'm, I'm reading this, Ian, and I'm going, whoa, whoa, wait, 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 what did they just say? Is this just a throwaway, another, <laughs> or, or is this just another O'Brien Easter egg, or is it, you know, all at once, just as he always does with us, you know, habeas corpus or habeas corpus as I grew up with here. It's like, yeah, I get that. One of England's great gifts to the world for securing our individual rights, you know, producing the body that if you don't have a good reason, uh, lawful grounds to keep somebody, you've got to let them go. Can't say fairer than that. We like that, but you know, Demitis. Wait a minute. This is this is biblical here. I grew up with this one. This is the Song of Simeon. It's the second chapter of Luke. Um, the actual canticle is is verses twenty nine through thirty two, and 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 actually that that Latin is the first words there. Now you dismiss you know, diminish, but. Uh, the story starts in verse 25, and I'm I'm a little taken aback here because the story is Simeon, who's this old, faithful, devout guy in Israel, 
He has been told by the Holy Spirit that he won't die until he's seen the Messiah. He witnesses the baby Jesus being brought to the temple in Jerusalem, picks him up, holds him in his arms, and now gives this canticle, which is so beautiful. I, I love an even song service, but it's, it's essentially saying, you know, Lord, now, and, and this is this is the Book of Common Prayer from Aubrey's day. Lord, now let us thy servant depart in peace according to thy word, and and it goes on about you know seeing the Messiah. But he's essentially saying, okay, now that I've you fulfilled your promise. I'm ready to die. You know, this is this is what I've been waiting for all my life. And and we've got Bondin touching wood saying, you know, I hope his luck's not coming in too high here. And I'm I'm a little ay, ay, ay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm worried here. And and Admiral Thornton preparing to leave the station. Right, right. Oh wow. that, that, that's pretty deep. That's pretty deep for a purser talking. Right. Well, you, you may be exactly right. This may be. Oh, yeah. And I know, you know, I know jujitsu and karate and a couple other words from across the uh, part of the globe. Right. Yeah. Here's here's my Latin phrase. No idea what it means. All right. So before the poetry throwdown, we get to have a Latin tag throwdown. So the purser's the purser's doing pretty well. So what's going on here then with the poetry? Uh, by the way, poetry, this theme that we've had all the way through the book, arguing about what's poetical and what isn't. Rowan. So Rowan's the ringer, right? Our, our great friend is Moet. He's the old Sophie, the old surprise from way back. Rowan begins with his work. And we believe that Rowan's work is more in what they might call the modern taste. He begins, he speeds through both his description of the poem and these verses themselves rather mundane. He's never changing his tone. He's not changing his pace. He's talking about the experience of running onto a reef at night. And he, Rowan, putting himself in the role of the hero of the story, saves the day by getting the captain not to throw the cannons over and then taking advantage of the shifting wind to free the ship. And I like the fact that uh, he's he does a little bit of self-deprecation, uh, talking about admitting to the part about his role in the incident, referring to the noble chieftain. He says, the noble chieftain part, that was poetic. Right. <laughs> yeah, nobody, nobody's quite buying it. Not with the captain that they know was on nah. the ship at the time. Right. No. There's such a thing as, as, as too vainglorious, I think. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Even in the gun room. We had an earlier scene back when Stephen was recruiting Graham to come back over and, and visit um, the Worcester and, and the whole mumps thing went on and, and we focused on that. What we didn't talk about was the fact that Stephen had been asked by Rowan to kind of give him some tips on his poetry and he, you know, loving Moet was not going to do that, but he he enlisted Graham to do it and Graham had read through some pages and kind of cringed and I don't, I don't know about you, Ian, reading, reading Moen's poetry here, but I, I cringed a little bit as well. But Moet, having heard Rowan's speed reciting, you know, kind of completely disregarding the conventions of reading verse in this race, is now really pale. He introduces his piece, and it's it's also about changing sails in dirty weather, sailing actually pretty close to their current position. Mm, okay. And, and he, by way of introduction, says that, that there's a simile in the beginning, a simile that he's quite proud of, but, but it might actually go better if he could have backed up and started by telling of this troop of porpoises swimming from Africa. But he hasn't the time. So O'Brien tells us he recites in a moaning voice with his eyes fixated on the glass, the hourglass. And 
He has this simile about the ship with her sails in the storm being like a beautiful uh, comparisoned proud horse. So this beautifully decked out glorious horse. And, and he looks around from the glass to see if the officers have reacted to this. Nobody seems to have gotten on. And so he hurries on and he's skipping some parts and he, you know, he just kind of rushes through it. And it's not in his usual manner. And he's just starting a line when Poolings abruptly calls time mid-verse. And, and O'Brien writes, oh, Tom says Moet sinking in his chair. His afflate is gone. So so no more divine inspiration for Moet at the moment. Oh. And by the way, another horse metaphor. Another horse metaphor. I think sheep may not be poetical, but horses clearly are. <laughs> so we've had what you might call the two hardcore poets. We've had Rowan and we've had Moet. The third contestant is a Marine. And you know, even though he's not playing the German flute, right. uh, we have low expectations, I think, of a, of a Marine officer, this poor guy. So he's pretty excited. He's chuckling and introduces the piece that he's about to recite, saying it's about a cove thinking about getting married. And this cove is getting married from a deep old file, a knowing friend. And he mumbles a bit, so they only hear the last verse clearly. And it suggests that if the girl is younger than youth, she's not deformed and has a competent fortune, perhaps less if you have enough, for what makes life delightful is love and a genteel sufficiency rather than riches. And this all seems to be going well, but the purser, the, the purser, the nunc dimittis guy, okay, so the purser's a deep old file. The purser wants to know if this half pay is a genteel sufficiency. And then Mr. Graham punctures the balloon and he notes that the words remind him of another poem and driver the marine lieutenant admits that it is that same poem written by a well-known author and he's shocked driver didn't realize the poems were meant to be original he thought it was a contest of delivery so there's a, a mike momentarily brief moment at a risk of some awkwardness some disagreement in the gun room but Jack settles the situation very equitably. He says, I find that Mr. Rowan carries the day as far as poetry in the classical manner is concerned, whereas Mr. Mowat wins for poetry in the modern style. The prize is therefore divided into two equal halves or moieties. And I think I do not misinterpret the company's sentiments when I urge both gentlemen to enter into contact with some respectable bookseller. Hear him hear him <laughs> just like with the togas in the oratorio we have jack dispensing the wisdom of solomon well done jack i kind of wondered when we started ionian mission and in in o'brien's forward he made a, a point to reference that this was actual poetry from actual seamen at that time and i kept thinking all of our references so far i don't get it but i, I take it that these two poems were you know lifted word for word so well done mr o'brien yet again and this is the gun room on the up. Remember that everybody's okay. We are all back aboard the surprise. We need one more thing to happen for this all to be straightened out and happy again. We need Stephen to successfully crack a joke. And God bless him, he does. We hear about earnings from publications. £500, gentlemen, for the first part of Lord Byron's Child Harold. Heavens, said Stephen. What would the adult Harold have fetched entire? Which is a great joke. And... We almost have its undoing because Professor Graham chips in and says, well, child is an archaic term for a young man of good family, but everything is okay. Stephen just managed to judge his joke successfully so as not to mis be misunderstood or to upset Graham. Graham chips in with a little bit of wisdom, just enough to show us that he's a bit of a humorless know-it-all, but everybody is still okay. So I call that a successful dinner. 
Well, even more successful, this great experience in the gun room, everybody together, Jack, you know, pronouncing it snuggier and, and kind of more homely than that, you know, that massive expanse they had on the Worcester. And we've got Jack and Stephen playing together later that night and playing into the night. And Jack, uh, Stephen's a bit out of sorts. He'd, he'd slept ashore when they had stopped in Valletta and gotten all eaten up by mosquitoes and fleas and he's itching and, and he's got a problem. His, his bowstring on the cello is falling apart. But Jack, while he's repairing his bowstring, is telling him how happy he is to be on the surprise again. And, and Stephen actually pauses and, and is considering Jack's mood because it, it really is a bit over the top. And Stephen reflects to himself, had Jack made some amorous conquest in Valletta or rather Jack, being less enterprising than Babington, had some odious wench led him by guile, by gentle force to a pagan altar, persuading him that it was he the conquering hero. No, the look was not quite right for that. It had nothing of male self-complacency, yet it was some heathen state of grace, he was sure. And when Jack tucking his fiddle under his chin, struck out a strange leaping phrase and then began to improvise upon it, he was sure still. Ah, Ian, here we got O'Brien and music and the magic here. Yeah, and, and music as a way of portraying what's going on emotionally, what's the emotional state of our two heroes. Jack especially. We had this glee, we had this irrational glee, even, even though if you go deeper, there are still undercurrents of discontent and tension in Jack's life. For some reason, there's the, the present situation aboard the surprise with the mission that he has, with the crew that he has, he can't contain this feeling of well-being. And the surest outlet for Jack feeling genuinely good about life is descriptions of him playing the fiddle with that expression of joy. And O'Brien goes on. What with his self-taught technique and various wounds, Jack could never be a very good player. But this evening he was making his fiddle sing so that it was a joy to hear. It was a wild, irregular song, expressing glee rather than any respect for rules, but a glee that was very, very far from being puerile. And contemplating Jack as he played away there by the stern window, Stephen wondered that a 16-stone post-captain, a scarred and battered gentleman with an incipient dewlap, could skip with such subtle grace, could possess such gaiety, could conceive such surprisingly witty and original concepts, and could express them so well. The dinner table Jack Aubrey delighted with a pun was a different being, yet the two lived in the same skin together. And this is great, you know, mu music as redemption and joy rather than for, for solace or for moody introspection. And Stephen and Jack go on together, together to play their old, well-paced Scarlatti in C major. And by the way, Mike, who knows if Scarlatti in C major really exists, but who cares? But the togetherness and the joy and the music, this is a really great high moment. I think. Yeah. And they're, and they're going on together well into the middle watch. And I'm like, yes, this is awesome. As they finally get ready to leave for the night, Stephen wonders out loud if Babington is going to remember the things he's supposed to bring back for him. He had he'd ordered some, some supplies, actually some mastic, and or if, as typical, maybe Babington got distracted by the women because they were supposed to be quite handsome there. 
And Jack is quite sure he'll remember, but he says, well, we're not likely to see Dryad in the morning because that Dutch tub, as he calls her, is of no use in light airs. And, and in fact, you know, the breeze has been dying and dying. And Jack makes a prediction that, it, that you know, both the ships may well be becalmed if the mist that they're in doesn't clear soon. And I think we're meant to sit up and take very slight notice of the fact that Stephen has had advance warning that the ship is going to be become. Right. Because what happens next is one of those kind of episodes that seems to punctuate Jack Aubrey's life. So Stephen gets up at dawn. He goes on deck. He sees a sail in the distance. He's pretty sure that it's Babington and the Dryad. I think he's still got in the back of his mind this closing message from Jack the previous night that they're going to be becalmed. So he thinks, well, calm weather, Babington within sight. I'm going for a swim. So he jumps in the water. He swims about the length of the ship before Jack comes on deck. He plunges into the sea thinking about teasing Jack about his morning swim. And he comes up from the dive and he sees the surprise has turned away and is packing on sail. <gasps> now, I don't think at any point reading this, even the first time through, I thought, uh-oh, Stephen's in serious trouble because of the lighthearted tone that's come before. But you do have that little rush of, oh my gosh, how is he going to get out of this? This must be the most unspeakably worrying moment when what you thought was a leisurely morning swim in calm breezes turns out to be, I've just jumped perhaps unseen overboard from a ship that's now packing on sail. Yeah. And Stephen is no great swimmer. I mean, Jack's taught him how to kind of dog paddle chop through the surf in calmness, but now he's panicked, he's chopping and luckily, there's one guy, everybody else, it's, it, there's actually a prize in sight, as it turns out. So everybody is focused on the prize. And O'Brien tells us that one man turns to spit and looking back, sees Stephen's anguished face in the waves. And then O'Brien has this great, always his change of perspective. So now we're back in Stephen's mind. And Stephen, it's kind of the, the narration tells us that Stephen can't put these together He's not sure what happened when, what, you know, exactly whether these things, but there's this great description about swallowing a great deal of seawater, going under, hearing back the fore topsail, sinking again, a darkness overshadowing and being pulled up by the ear, elbow and left heel, a midshipman checking to see if he's okay, a boat bumping up against the ship. And then he hears very clearly, this is when kind of his memories coming back to him. He won't half cop it if the skipper misses of the prize by reason of his topping at the grampus. So I had to get a translation for this one, Ian. I was not quite sure exactly what that meant. The best I could do, you you, you help me here, is if Jack misses that prize because Stephen's playing dolphin, Jack's going to kill him. <laughs> yeah, I think you nailed it. I think that's great. I, I can't remember, Mike, how many books it is since Jack fished one of his crew members out of the ocean but it's been a little while so you know it's time for one of these to come around again seems to happen with well what jack regards as monotonous regularity and it's funny we've listened earlier on in the book to the thoughts of jack who's worried about the crew's poor opinion of himself and his conduct and his physical courage and his motivation and we get a really strong signal that stephen has blotted his copybook now because even bonden is indignant over Stephen's cavorting around, putting himself in the water at this critical moment. He tries to wrestle Stephen below. Stephen escapes, goes to Jack, who's standing with Pullings and the gunner. They're trying to get this brass nine-pounder trained on the fleeing brig. And 
in the face of the, Stephen's apology, Jack just cuts him cold. He says, you can't leave the ship without permission. You shouldn't be appearing on deck improperly dressed. Go below so that uh, so that we can discuss it later. And this is really desperate for Stephen. This is a real, oh, belly blow. Yeah, Stephen's down in his cabin and you know he hears the guns begin its deliberate firing. And O'Brien writes that he felt cold and depressed. On his way below, he'd met nothing but disapproving looks. And when he called for his servant, there was no reply. If it had not been for the possibility of this vile prize, if it had not been for their greed, their groveling cupidity, he would have been surrounded with loving care. He would have been caressed on all hands and congratulated on his escape. Wrapping himself in a blanket, he dropped into an improbable doze, then deeper, deeper into an profound insensibility. We'd learned earlier that Stephen had been up all night with his mosquito bites and flea bites. So now he's completely out of it. And then he's shaken, violently shaken by Peter Calamy, who told him in a shrill bellow that old Borrow had cut her main topsails, halyards away at a thousand yards, all come down with a run. Lord, how they had roared. She was alongside now. And the captain thought he might like to have a look at her. <laughs> it's great, isn't it, that this little reassuring sort of redeeming connection is from Calamy, a boy, you know, a, a midshipman. We've had this before for Stephen. He gets redemption through caring, loving contact with kids. And this is a really, really touching moment. Calamy's clearly become fond of Stephen. Stephen treated his mumps. And it's a little bit, just a little tiny hint of the connection that Stephen had with Dill in the in the HMS Surprise novel. Calamy takes care of Stephen. He convinces Stephen that maybe he should dress and perhaps dress well for coming on deck. Helps him into his fancy morning breeches and his fancy frilled shirt. And the, the redemption pays off because back on deck, Jack is happy to see Stephen and shows him the prize. The prize is the Bonhomme Richard, a well-known blockade runner, which Stephen sees straight away, actually. Looks nothing like the Dryad. And uh, Bonhomme Richard might well have eluded them had the gunner not cut away her topsail halyards, as Calamy said, at a thousand yards. Ah, ah. Well, Stephen looks down, you know, he sees the masts fall and, and all this blood all over the deck. And he, he wonders, you know, my God, did the mass cause all that? But learns that, in fact, before the surprise had seen her, she'd already been taken by Greek pirates. Now, now Stephen, he's a great admirer of ancient Greece. He's a great current supporter of Greek independence. And you know, he has kind of a fondness for the Greeks. And he likes to say, well, I'm sure there aren't many of those. But Jack tells him, oh, my God. These waters are full of Greek pirates, and they are as bad as the Corsairs from the Barbary Coast. Everyone turns on everyone out here. A friend one moment is boarding you at night the next, which is, in fact, what they had done with this ship. And once they uh, took the mast down, the Greeks had jumped off into the boats and fled, leaving the couple of remaining French on board, thinking that the English might hold their shot and not try to shoot past the prize to get them, which in fact had happened there. So on board the Bonhomme Richard, on board this prize, they find the hold full of spices and Jack Aubrey's favorite smell in the world, yes. <laughs> a heaping pile of silver coins. <sighs> ah, the smell of prize money. So they get it bagged, they bring it on board, and Jack chooses to go about this the old-fashioned way. He's going to distribute the silver among the crew straight away. He doesn't chase the Greeks when the boats reach their felucca, 
Um, the the Falucca sails away under its two latines, helped by the long, heavy sweeps. Jack doesn't want to waste time taking them to Malta to be tried. He'd rather deal with them in what is called the Turks' brisk fashion. So Jack instructs Rowan on taking the prize in, and meanwhile we spot the Dryad in company. And the surprises are able to feel a little bit glad that the Dryad wasn't on the horizon because if that had happened when they took the prize, they would have had to share the prize money. So Jack musters the men and explains that he's not going to make them wait six months for the Admiralty Courts. They're going to distribute the prize money now. Cochrane, Lord Thomas Cochrane, who was the inspiration for the life of Jack Aubrey and feeds into a lot of what O'Brien wrote about Aubrey, Cochrane had a bit of a bee in his bonnet about prize courts, especially prize courts in the Mediterranean and in particular in Malta. And the real-life Thomas Cochrane tilted at the windmills quite a lot in Parliament and lobbying around the Admiralty, trying to expose what he saw as corruption and sloth and greed and incompetence in the administration of the prize courts. So coming back, harping back to the prize courts from time to time is a pretty Cochrane-like feature for Jack Aubrey. Anyhow, he's doing his piratical Cochranian bit by distributing the prize money and bypassing or at least shortening the process of these obscure and corrupt prize courts in uh, in Malta. And Jack sees that the Dryad appears to have now women on board her decks. What, what's going on there, Mike? Yeah, it's, it's so wild. He's looking over and he can't believe it. He's actually like craning to see it. There are more women than men on the decks. And so he sends a signal out. And, and this is this is who in command? Oh, this is Babington. You know, we know Babington, Babington's reputation. And this is exactly, although infinitely more, what Stephen was worried about, that he'd get distracted by women. And Jack is beside himself. So he wants to send Rowan off with the prize. But first, he wants to make sure that the, the transports are, are waiting for him so he can let the Admiral know. But as Babington comes on board, he checks to, to make sure the transports are okay. And then he sends Rowan off with the prize to report to the commander-in-chief. And he says, you need not mention the fact that you saw one of the squadron crammed with women from head to stern. You need not report this open and, may I say, shameless violation of the Articles of War, for that disagreeable task falls to your superiors. Nor need you make any observations about floating brothels or the relaxation of discipline in the warmer eastern waters, for these observations will naturally occur to the commander-in-chief without your help. Now, pray go aboard our prize and proceed to Malta without the loss of a minute. Not all of us can spare the time to dally with the sex. Boy, <laughs> <laughs> that's a brilliant. That's a, that's a that's a ten out of ten paragraph from Jack Aubrey. Oh my gosh, poor Babington here, right? <laughs> Yeah, so uh, Babington, bless him, attempts to protest. And I think part of the weakness in his protest is that it, it could well be what it appears to be. Part of the weakness is that all of his past character is as a womanizer, so he knows that that's not helping him. And part of the weakness of his response is just, yeah, Jack rinsed him. Jack absolutely nailed this <laughs> with his uh, the dire imprecation spoken at second hand to Rowan. So Jack notices that Babington is trying to protest and he cuts right in. He says, you will not deny that they are women, surely. I can tell the difference between Adam and Eve as quick as the next man, even if you cannot, just as I can tell the difference between an active, zealous officer and a lubber that lies in port indulging his whims. It is of no use trying to impose on me. And Babington interrupts, no, sir, but these are all respectable women. Then why, says Jack, why are they leering over the side like that, making gestures? It is only their way, sir. They are all lesbians. 
And Jack cuts in. No doubt they're all Parsons' daughters, your cousins in the third degree, like that wench in Ceylon. And lesbians, interrupts Babington, lesbians always join their hands like that to show respect. You are become an authority on the motions of Greek women, it appears. Oh, sir, cried Babington, his voice growing shriller still. I know you do not like women aboard. I believe I have had occasion to mention it to you some 50 or 60 times in the last 10 years. But if you will allow me to explain, says Babington, it would be interesting, says Jack, to hear how the presence of 37, no, 38 young women in one of His Majesty's sloops can be explained. But since I like some decency to be preserved on my quarter deck, perhaps the explanation had better take place in the cabin. <laughs> Babington, ouch. Yeah, both barrels. Yes. Woo. Oh, and can kind of see a, an O'Brienism coming here, right? <laughs> of course, they're lesbians. So they get into the cabin, and and I love this. Babington says that he is blameless in thought, word, and deed, and then corrects himself, says, well, perhaps not in thought. <laughs> and that's, that's about as honest as you can be here. And after he dropped the transports, he said, sailing back out, he saw a ship flying distress flags. It had been dismasted and a squall had run out of water. And because they run out because they had so many prisoners and they'd actually been a raiding ship, a more raiding ship. They'd been going to these Greek islands, picking up women and they picked up a bunch on Naxos. And then uh, they picked up this huge female wedding party in Lesbos crossing the channel there. And Babington told the Moors that he must take the Christian women with him. And as they're discussing this, there's this great big fight that breaks out between the women of Naxos and the Lesbos women. And because and the, the first did not want to leave the Moors, and the second were really passionate about going home. And they start scratching and kicking and pulling each other's hair. And Babington sends his men in to break it up, and several of them are badly injured with the bosun, you know, being you know bitten right to the bone, and a, a lot of people scratched. Well, they break that fight up. They help the Moors rig a jury mast. They give them enough biscuit and water to make it home. Pick up the women from Lesbos, and you know they speed to make the rendezvous with Jack in the surprise here. And then Babington concludes saying. And here I am, sir, quite happy to be publicly reproached, abused, and amazingly vilified, so long as I am conscious of having done my duty. And Jack's a bit stunned. Well, damn, William, I, I am sorry. I'm, I'm very sorry indeed. I, I am. But injustice is a rule of the service, as you know very well. And since you have to have a good deal of undeserved abuse, you might just as well have it from your friends. <laughs> it's funny there's a, a line that i can absolutely imagine the russell crow jack aubrey delivering i think that's that's great that, that's got to be in the sequel whenever it comes to master of command right disney netflix uh you know amazon whoever is remaking this let's remember that line <laughs> And there's loads of delicious little bits of irony and double meaning here. Of course, we've got the, the kind of broad strokes joke about women from Lesbos and lesbians. So we get to say lesbian lots of times and have a bit of a snigger. Um, it's ironic that the women from Lesbos are the ones who want to come with Babington right. while the other ones want to stay with, with their Moorish captors. There's a bit of irony that it's Jack coming down hard on Babington about women and Babington is blameless. And, you know, the pot is only a half a shade blacker than the kettle here, you could say. Right. And then we get this nice thing about, well, that's just the way of the service. You're going to get called out and vilified for things that aren't your fault. So you might as well have, you know, have your friends dishing out the punishment. 
Yeah, and, and I'm hoping that, again, that's not a classic O'Brien foreshadow. <laughs> Uh-oh, is that going to happen again? Oh, gosh. Oh, gosh. I don't know. Anyway, if there was ever a breach, if it was ever more than just bluster, then it's repaired when Jack says, have a glass of Madeira, make all haste, catch the wind, and take your pretty creatures to Kefalonia to entrust them to the governor. And by the way, Mike, um, Kefalonia is the island that people might have heard of um, for the book and the movie um, Captain Corelli's Mandolin. So if you've got that image of blue sea and those beautiful white domed buildings on Kefalonia, that's where we're talking about. Nice. Nice. Well, Babbing tells Jack in passing as, as they're waiting, they've invited Stephen and Poolings to come have another glass of wine with Babington before he leaves. And he's informing him that there was this Turkish frigate that they'd passed on the way just before he met the surprise. And he said that they, they'd returned kind of each given each other the colors and a civil gun, but that Babington reports that she was really cracking on chasing a felucca. And, and we kind of suspect we know who that is, but she was flying in her sails in an unusual configuration for a Turk, that the studding sails were aloft and low on either side and really making incredible speed. Well, Professor Graham also joins them. They're discussing this and he says, ah, that frigate is the Turgood of 30 guns. She and the Katabi of 20 guns and a few other smaller ships make up Mustafa's fleet. Ah, the bay that the Admiral kind of preferred. He rules Caria. And but he's also, I'd mentioned Bay has a lot of different meanings. He's the Captain Bay in the area, which means that he's kind of the naval commander of that area. But Graham says that his understanding is that this guy uses the ships as he pleases without reference to Constantinople, and which is just as well because he says he has to pay them himself, that Constantinople does it. But he has always been known to be an active and zealous officer. Mm. So we're starting to get a picture emerging of at least one of our three competing bays. That's this uh, Capitan Bay Mustafa. And Mike, we get to the close of the chapter and it's all been lighthearted and enjoyable and free flowing as we've taken a rise out of Babington and his lesbians. But we close the chapter on a dark note. They've been sailing for an hour or two. They've lost the dryad and the bonhomme to view. They come across signs of what Mustafa and the Torgood were all about. It says they came across the charred remains of a felucca, shattered by gunfire, but still just a wash and still just recognizable. Then, perfectly recognizable, 20 or 30 corpses drifting in a line along the current, all Greek, all stripped, some headless, some with their throats cut, some impaled, and three roughly crucified, St. Andrew fashion, on the felucca's broken sweeps. So ends chapter nine. Yeah, I'm wondering, you know, so is this part of what Jack has in store for him and the surprise, this kind of greeting in these waters? And here it is, the Admiral's choice for the favored bay appears to be just absolutely, you know, bloodthirsty and, you know, no mercy with these Greek pirates. You kind of have to ask yourself, what kind of ally can he make? Can he be trusted? What are the other bays going to turn out to be like? Um, I'm very interested, as you say, after all this lighthearted and great send up to say, what do we have next? Because we know we've, we've only got a couple chapters left here in this Ionian mission. Yeah. And to be honest, we're all asking, have we seen the last of the lesbian? 
I wasn't going to go there, but I think we always have to throw that in to be, you know, give our homage to to O'Brien here. Yes, right, right. A little bit of that humor here. Well, in that lighter note, what do you say next week to a little bit more Patrick O'Brien? I should like that of all things. turns on everybody. Everybody's an opportunist. It doesn't remind me at all of any political systems I'm currently aware of, but I no, no idea. <laughs>